0: It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state-of-the-art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, here we are again. Greetings everyone, and thanks for tuning in. We'll dive into part two of our chat with Tom Cutter here in just a moment. I wanna take this time to put out an APB, that's an all points bulletin, for all of you that have survivor bikes. And what I mean by that is a 247 or 246 airhead that's still wearing its factory paint job, is unrestored and still using a vast majority of its original components. Yes, there are variations on this theme. However, I think you all know what we're getting at here. The reason is we're starting a survivor series, spotlighting these machines, We'd love to hear the story of your bike. If you've got one that fits the bill, drop us a line at airheads247 at hotmail.com. Let us know some of the history of the bike, where you found it, how long you've had it, and any notable repairs, modifications, etc. you've done during your ownership tenure. Also, please include some good quality photos we might share with everyone as well. We'll have more information on this project in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, if you've got a Survivor, original paint, time machine, as I like to call it, no matter the condition, we'd love to hear from you. Again, airheads247 at hotmail.com. All right, enough of that for now. Back to our conversation and part two with Tom Cutter. All right, I wanna move a little bit forward in the timeline here. Uh, yeah. Especially in, in the '80s, and talk about what was originally the end of the 247 uh, boxer airhead, anticipating uh, the release of the K bike. So, tell me a little bit about the backstory of how the airhead engine was—that uh, particular model was to be phased out with the introduction of the new K bike—and how that didn't ended up not happening. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm trying to say they didn't make much fanfare about it. They told us we're going to do some last edition models. The R100 uh, Twin is going away. We're going to continue to to have the R80. Okay. Um, and that was you know the R80 GS is going to continue, and we're going to have a new GS coming. That was about all they told us. So we didn't get a lot of a, a lot of press about it. BMW was really poor at communication in those days with the dealers. Very, very poor at it, and uh, they acted like everything was a secret, and that was always our joke at Butler and Smith was that everything is the secret in Germany, including the weather and the time. (laughs) Um, And and, and you you have no need to know those things. Um, And and that's the way we got treated, and that was the same with those models. Very little fanfare. I don't recall, of course, I was going through a lot of personal issues at that time. I was getting divorced, relocated, A lot of other things happening for me as well. Um, I left that dealership in 1986, the one in Staten Island, and uh, um, floated around for a while, did some other stuff. So I really wasn't tied in on a day-to-day for a couple of years. But the R100, the last edition series, it didn't ignite any hot new sales. And we sold them. Um, People came in, yeah, the white one looked good, yeah, I'll take that one kind of deal and nobody was like calling up from Ohio saying, hey, have you got a last edition bike, save it for me kind right, of thing. right Yeah, you know, we were getting those kind of calls for STs. We were getting those kind of calls for our 2995 R65s. We bought two trailer loads of R65s and put an ad in the New York Times that says R65, was it that our sales manager made an ad, said phone the neighbors, wake the dog, it's a twenty R sixty five, twenty nine ninety five free BMW helmet. I come to work the day after It ran in a Friday afternoon, it ran in the New York Times on Saturday morning. I get a call from the shop, uh, like an hour before opening time I said, You better get down here. So the people are starting to fight over position in the line. Wow. Like, that doesn't happen for selling BMW motorcycles. Yeah, no kidding. I get there and my sales manager has got a his yeah, he grinned from ear to ear. He says, "Look at that!" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, okay." But the problem is, we're only making about ninety dollars per bite. <laughs> I well, said, so don't give away anything else, please.
0: <laughs> but you're ga- you're gaining customers, obviously, too. So
1: there, yeah. there's that. You know what? <laughs> there's not a, the the biggest single profit area for a dealer in those days was the day you sold the new vehicle. Really? You had a chance to make six or seven hundred bucks. After that, you know, your service, the service wasn't the huge uh, uh, moneymaker that it is now. Um, you know, labor rates were low. Um, and BMW's warranty acceptance and rejection rate was exceptionally high. You would do something on warranty, and BMW would bounce the claim, and you had to eat it had to eat painting the mechanic and paying for the parts and stuff and and that they lost a lot of dealers over that i
0: stuff. believe it i believe so it,
1: it It wasn't all you know sunshine and roses but boy those r65s just went like crazy
0: so um, i and were they really pushing the k bikes as the new trend in bmw motorcycles
1: yeah, well, when we went to the dealer meeting in in, in Vale, the K bikes were the deal. That was the subject of the meeting, and uh, you know they they had a rider rode the the chrome plated one up onto the stage mm. and stuff, and and like I know it was exciting stuff, and and we all got to take test rides on them, and and uh, uh, had a lot of fun with that, and and yeah, we had a great dealer meeting and got to meet Gaston Raye and. Got him drunk, and he, t- he took the, his, his, his race bike out and fired it up. He rode it up and down the ski slopes, had all the police from Vail. We <laughs> lit up the whole town with police lights for a couple of hours.
0: Now, for folks right, who don't right. know, uh, you're referring, that was the fellow who won uh, all the uh, Paris-Dakar races.
1: That is right. Gaston Rye was a yeah. uh, a Belgian police officer. Uh uh, standing tall and sucking in his chest, the top of his head or his eyeballs came about to the level of the gas cap on his Marlboro Modified R80GS race bike.
0: That's right. Also, uh, wasn't yeah, he a steel,
1: affi- stool to get on?
0: Affectionately known, you I think? guess, as Tom Thumb in some circles as well.
1: Uh, I would never have called him that. I had way too much respect for him. He was a really cool guy. Fair
0: enough. Fair uh, enough. Re-
1: really a nice guy to to know and and. Uh, uh, I didn't have much contact with him after that, that first weekend, but we hit it off right away. And, uh, you know, I tend to be the ringleader of getting people in trouble.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, good. <laughs> well, and so I don't want to talk about the K-bike a whole lot here, but I just think it, it bears to mention or, or bring up in the conversation. Uh, I did From my perspective, that didn't seem to resonate and take off as much maybe with the buying public who were already aficionados of the Airhead two four seven as maybe BMW thought, or is that just uh, my opinion and I'm off base?
1: Well, it was, they were selling to a different clientele, and they did sell well. Yeah, the, the k series were good selling; they were Stone ax reliable. Um, thank God they came they came out of the they came out of the box running well. No major problems. They had a couple of recalls, but they had a foot peg recall. Big deal. You know? Yeah, right. A dealer could do that that recall in a half hour during any service on the bike. You do it for a customer while he waited in the showroom kind of thing. It was no problem. Um, they were good bikes. They were absolutely bulletproof bikes. As a matter of fact, I joke now that if you have an internal engine problem on a K-bike, don't fix it. <laughs> Just throw away the motor and get another get one Because another one. every dealer in the country Has a motor out of a K-bike That he's taken out of a wrecked bike And the motors go forever Fair and enough it's, you know, You'd pay less for that motor You'd be buying it by the pound And uh, you'd pay less than you'd pay for Four new pistons for your stock k motor. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a good point
1: And Because uh, they're all over They're out there all over the place And uh, still uh, probably still the case today Uh, They were good, rock-solid motorcycles. They took people a lot of miles. I had a lot of customers who went over 100K with no problem at all. And if anything, BMW kind of shot themselves in the foot because the bikes were very futuristic uh, styling-wise. So they didn't fade. The appearance-wise, they didn't fade compared to the newer models coming out each year. So they didn't generate a lot of new buyers because people were like, well, my bike is good.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: I'm going to do my rallies and stuff this year, and my bike is good. I don't need to get a new bike.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point.
1: There's something to be said for changing stuff just for the sake of change if you want to sell, if your goal is to make money selling new product. Yep. Remember, that's the goal. For the dealerships and for the factory, they're not really interested in how far you're going to ride the motorcycle. So that's not a moneymaker for
0: them. Yeah. Now, going on then again, there was the actual real end of the 247 model run uh, in 95. So compared to sort of what you were hearing, which I guess really wasn't much back uh, in 84, how was that handled uh, with dealers and uh, with BMW NA and I guess to some degree uh, with your customer base and people you knew Knowing that those were the last, that's ninety five was going to be the last year model uh, of the two four seven.
1: Uh, people didn't seem to really care. Really, um, the uh, the excitement had faded on the airheads. Uh, you're talking about like nineteen ninety five. Think about the bikes that were available then across the market, yeah. all, our, all across the motorcycle market, and the BMW airhead was a bizarre anachronism. And monolever suspension and uh, and, and some weird Paris styling on the GS really wasn't a lifesaver for it. They sold a few, but they were not nobody was knocking down the showroom doors to get to those bikes. They got re- relegated to a corner of the showroom and they sat there and gathered dust. Um, and I, at that time I was working for a dealer in, uh, in uh, Deptford, New Jersey, um, and the airheads, pretty much just sat.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, they, 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 they had a long, long showroom life compared to the other models, the K-bikes, the, uh, you know, the R1100 series, the oil heads that came out. Those are pretty exciting bikes. And, uh, you know, BMW is just moving on. You know, technology moves on. And, and BMW really, they kind of had to terminate the airheads because the cost to manufacture that crankcase was greater than what it cost to Honda to build a whole new VFR 750.
0: Wow, that's amazing
1: was an incredibly complex process with a very high reject rate from between casting, machining, fitting, everything else that they did to make that case. That was what made that bike so prohibitively expensive to manufacture, which meant very little profit for everybody down the chain. And when you got to the retail sales end, you couldn't price competitively against the other products coming out. Wow. You know, you're just at a disadvantage. All that had to do with that crankcase design was hmm. really where that problem started. Interesting. And so they did their, they could do. They cheaped out everything else that they could. They put garbage shocks and, and forks on the bike, They you know, cheap, cheap stuff. And they put garbage wiring on the bikes and, and you know, stuff like that. And they just did, you know, nobody was excited anymore. I have the feeling that the, the designers at BMW were were a bunch of old fuddy duddies, you know, with patches on their sweaters, their elbows <laughs> back in a corner office kind of deal. Yeah, and then nobody really cared.
0: Huh? Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I've never really heard that that take on it. So well, let me ask you this then: When, in your estimation, okay, so the model and the model uh, and runs uh, around ninety five, at some point they become now a vintage and classic bike, uh, and sort of get a second new life uh, among enthusiasts that way. Uh, how long did that take by your estimation? I mean, was it in a, another, you know, decade, 10 years, you know, 15, 20 years? I yeah. don't know, because... Well, I would,
1: yeah, let me think now. I, I opened my shop in Staten Island, uh, in uh, Brooklyn, in 88, fall of 88 and uh we did a very brisk business up to 93 when i sold that store <clears throat> excuse me um and uh um had a lot of airhead customers because we had the uh, between me and, and franco glares who was the in-house mechanic at butler and smith was my partner in that business and he lived right around the corner in brooklyn and so he could walk to work and you know, the old sicilian guy who was in his sicilian neighborhood so he was right at home, and, and and we had a good mix, and and uh, we had a strong clientele. But I wasn't in retail sales in those days, so I catered mostly to airhead customers. I mean, we serviced the people who came to us with K bikes. was no problem. But really, our focus was on on airhead bikes, valve jobs, transmission overhauls, stuff like that. We're still getting a lot of mail order work at that point for that kind of stuff. That was a big portion of our business. Um, but uh,
0: the interest, the, the, yeah. What I was going to say there was uh, the I'm, interest. It didn't necessarily with the model. The models uh, ended. Uh, production of the airhead ended, but the interest and sustainability of the bikes and people who wanted to keep them as long-term riders or, you know, whatever, that didn't seem to really necessarily die off.
1: No, absolutely not. I mean, look, we go to an MOA rally in 2021 and there's an active airhead community there. Mm -hmm. I do airhead tech seminars at the national rallies and the seminars that I do average 250 people in the seats. That tells me that there's a, they're, they're not drawing that for any of the new model seminars. No, The, Air, the airhead people are interested, and they travel, and a lot of them tell me I only came to this rally to sit in your seminars. And I'm usually the only one that gets to do two seminars at each rally because there's, there's popular demand for it. There's, there is a, a clientele of people that really want that, they want their information. They want to be heard. They want to ask questions, you know, stuff that, Yeah, you know, they go into a modern dealership and they ask an airhead question. And everybody looks at them like, like, what's an R75 slash five?
0: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't even do imagine a- going into a dealer, a BMW dealer for anything airhead related. I don't, I don't even know why I would do it. Obviously, there are a few uh, out there where you could. There but- are
1: some dealers who cater very much to it yes. and have people on staff that are very well Oh, you know, well trained and experienced, And, but those guys are getting older. Yeah. You know, and it, a lot of them are retiring and stuff like that. But, but, uh, you know, there is, there is a community across the country of, of airhead capable shops. There is, there is, uh, a, a pretty impressive listing available on the airheads.org site and on the airmail magazine of, uh, and, and in the, uh, the, the, the directory, the directory yeah. of <laughs> airhead club owners, uh, all of these things are, you know, there's a lot of shops out there that are well-versed in airhead stuff, and, and it's a vibrant and active community.
0: It is, yeah.
1: But my son observed, he went to rallies with me for years, and, and he and I noticed one time, they always used to give the stats for the rally, and the oldest person and the youngest person in the median age, and every year I was within six months of the median age. And every year as I got a year older, that's continued to be the case.
0: <laughs> it's remained the same. <laughs> it
1: told me that the entire body of the MOA is getting old. Yeah. And that younger people aren't coming in. That's not what they're, they're interested now in, in the, a lot of the retro, you know, uh, cafe shops and stuff like that are drawing people. But, I don't know what kind of life that has, because every bike that you hack up like that, you destroy all of the values that make it good as as a motorcycle, and it's, you know, riding a bike around with no fenders on it loses a lot of attraction the first time it rains.
0: Yeah, very quickly. Yeah, that
1: bike ends up in the back of the garage, or it ends up all shined up sitting on a pedestal in somebody's you know art studio or whatever, but... But they're not staying in circulation, I don't believe, you know. Or they're getting hacked up, and a lot of them are now basket cases because somebody had this idea. So they got the bike and they sawed the frame off and sawed the foot pegs off and and hacked up the fenders and never finished the job.
0: Well, it sounds a lot like that uh, old shovelhead chopper phenomenon you had uh, back in the early 70s. Yep. Yep, Exactly. really, Really similar. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer Two Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer2Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. I want to ask you, and Tom, I want to ask you about uh, a couple things here. Uh, as we're sort of wrapping up, at least on the timeline here of, uh, of your time with these bikes, um, <clears throat> you got to meet Hans Muth. Uh, and I guess that was at the 40th anniversary celebration of, of the R90S. And I've seen, yeah. I've seen on the Internet uh, a lot of different pictures of that event. Uh have seen a lot of pictures of of Hans, you know, posing with people and their motorcycles, and he signed their bikes and, and things like that. And the, just the impression I get from seeing those pictures from maybe that event or some other ones is that uh, he seems like a fella that uh, has embraced uh, the, the legacy of what he did with the 90S, the RS, the GS, the... The LS, the R65, and he sort of likes going to those events. And he's not uh it's, why even it seems kind of weird to say this, but he's not kind of above going and meeting fans and riders of the bike and and uh you know having a beer and hanging out. I mean, he just seems like uh the kind of guy that enjoys uh sort of being around people who enjoy what he did. Tell me about sort of meeting him and come into your shop uh him coming to your shop and your impressions of him uh as an older gentleman
1: um Hans is quite a character he's uh god i, I hope to hell at his age that i'm anywhere near that healthy right um he is he is a go-getter and he he is active he is like many germans is healthy he's fit he takes care of himself. He uh, just a real pleasure to me from the moment that I met him. Um, you know, I, I met him at a uh, it was a dinner, a, like a VIP dinner before the R nine DS anniversary celebration, and I happened to be seated next to him and across the table from Ray Blank, who was the senior vice president of American Honda Motor Company. Um, Ray was the 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 big cheese at Honda for 30 years. Well, he was not start out as that, but he worked his way up there. And uh, listening to the conversation between the two of them, because they knew each other quite well, because Honda tried several times to engage Hans in different projects and stuff. And, and Ray, in his home, his garage, he had in 1974 or 90s was his first motorcycle he bought right out of college, and he goes to work for Honda, and he's got this BMW that he kept, and that's why he came to the r 9 rally. And and Ray came and stayed at my house that week because <clears throat> that weekend was Comic-Con in Philadelphia, and there was no lodging available anywhere. And I kind of got wind of that, and and I knew that Ray was coming into town, and I knew that he and Udo Giedel had worked together at Honda, and I had invited Udo, Udo to come, because he was an old friend. So I said, why don't mm-hmm. I invite Ray Blank? And uh, so Ray came, and Udo came, and they stayed at my house. And uh, so we had a nice time together. And at the end of the weekend, <clears throat> um, we were on uh, Sunday after the rally ended. Uh, think, Tony Karras, who was the host of the r D S rally, Right. Uh, and Todd Trumbor invited me to go to a lunch as they took haunts back to the airport. And so we met up right pretty near my house, which was sort of en route. And uh, we went to a nice luncheon, and uh, um, uh, Udo was there. Uh, Ray was there. Uh, had a bunch of people, heavy hitters around the table. and And just, you know, it's the kind of thing where we just did our public thing at the rally, and now we kind of get to... Yeah, we're all industry people. And you get sometimes it's a chance to just put your feet up and breathe a sigh of relief and just relax and just talk to each other about personal stuff, you know, family and and, and all that stuff. You know, grand pictures of grandchildren, all that good stuff. And uh, we got done lunch, and they still had several hours before they had to be at the airport. And uh, (laughs) Hans says, yeah, my business card, he says, I got this, this is a rubber chicken racing garage. <laughs> well, the rubber chicken racing garage is just my garage at my house. And it had a rubber chicken hanging up in the corner. It was part of a Halloween costume that I had one time. And And when we were building the shop in my garage, the guy that was building was my neighbor, an Australian guy, and I was wiring up the phone and I said to him, Pick up the phone and see if you got dial tone and he picks up the phone and he looks at the rubber chicken and he says, Hello, rubber chicken racing garage, may I help you? And I said, You just named it.
0: Yeah, the name stuck.
1: And he said, No, that's silly. That, that, that's stupid. You can't name a business that well. It has stuck. It's gotten well known. And uh, nobody forgets it. And, you know, a business name that nobody forgets is so valuable. It is. Um, yeah. You know, and, and uh, um, but Hans really enjoyed being there. He came in, he said, This is the way I worked when I first started in the business. He said, I worked out of a garage. He said, and I loved it. And I said, well, as I'm winding down in my senior years, this is what I, Bob Hennig was there. And Bob said, this is how I started. He said, I started out of the garage at my mother's house. Yeah. He said, this is how I started Bob's used parts. I said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it was kind of a nostalgic moment for those guys in there. And we clowned around a little bit. And, and uh, I, was, uh, <laughs> I have a good picture of, uh, I was, working on a transmission and I do a lot of special stuff in the gearboxes and Bob pulls out a camera and Klaus and, and, and Hans grabbed a towel and held it up to block the view of the transmission. Yeah. <laughs> he, said, Bob. I... he said, No espionage <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we all got a great laugh out of that. And just you know, it was just it was a moment for us to all kind of let our hair down after several days of being on presentation. You know, it's like those kind of events are exhausting.
0: They are. And, you know, I was going to say, Hans has got to be a pretty patient guy to go to something like that because, you know, you're around, you know, however many people were there, 50, 60, 70 guys on RSs and S bikes and how many times... Somebody come up to me and you say, Oh, I'm a great fan of yours. I, you know, thank you for doing this and you know, you probably, you're yeah. responding to the same sort of conversation, you know, ninety five times over a two day period. So yeah, you have to have some I
1: learned a lot from him by watching him handle that because I get that too. I yeah. I've gotten you know, not to blow my own, but I've gotten pretty well recognized in the airhead circles. And when I go to rallies, I get people come over and say, I just have a question about my voice. And I always say to them, I say, well, come to the, come to the seminar and put your hand up. My seminars are Q&A from beginning to end. That's all they are. And so put your hand up because whatever question you have, there's 50 other people in that the audience hear. that the same question. They're too shy to ask, so please do that. <clears throat> but people still, they want to know. They, they want to have the personal talk, and I'm fine with that. It's, it's just part of the part that I really enjoy about being in the business is, is the people. You know, and I don't do this for the money. I I, used to, I joked about the guys not knowing that they were in it for the money. But if I was in it for the money, somehow the money got away from me. But <laughs> that's okay. I don't I don't care. It's like you know, you know, money is not the the cornerstone of life. And and for those who it is, for whom it is, I think it's really sad because it, it you forget and miss so much. I had so many dear friends in my life that I've met through the the BMW. All of the stuff that I've done with BMW and the events and the rallies, the gatherings, the club stuff, all of that, you know, it's been just so, so reaffirming. And, uh, uh, you know, these are friendships that have, that have real legs to them, you know?
0: Yeah, that's BMW true.
1: BMW customer from my shop in Staten Island was my best man at my wedding. You know, it's like, you know, people, they get into your life and they get under your skin.
0: Yeah and along those lines uh, I don't know when this happened uh but you know you also uh, the the friend of the Marquee award now that is uh given uh by whom uh to to you and what's the sort of criteria as the friend of the Marquee award I mean I've heard the term but I don't know much about much about it Okay
1: First, it's Friend of the Mark, with one E. Oh, okay. It's a separate term. Thank Mar- you. Marquee is what you put above the movie theater to say what the coming okay. is.
0: Okay. Friend of the Mark. Mark is the brand. Got it. The okay. <clears throat> so now you know that. I so, do. Thank
1: you. Then, now you know as much about it as I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. It, it's always been kind of shrouded in mystery, because I always kind of thought it was a car thing. Yeah. Yeah. Is the vast majority of people that received it are in the car world and then they decided to do it for a few people in the motorcycle world. And I would say that I recognize and you know, there are very few Americans that have received it, maybe maybe eight or ten. But unfortunately, and this kind of you know, it is weird and I don't know how it happened. But one of the I think the vintage BMW Club decided to start they they usurped the award and started making their own. Okay. Giving them out because I've seen them. I've been in these shops, these guys that do vintage stuff, and they've got a friend of the marker word a little plaque. I look at it and I think, You're not on the list, I don't know you from the list. And they say, No, I got that from the vintage club, but it doesn't say vintage BMW owners, it's just got a BMW logo on there. But, anyways, I digress. Yes, that's uh, that's just an odd anomaly, but um. The the award is given by the Council of BMW Clubs International, which I don't even know what that entity is. Me neither. I really don't understand who. I think that it is overseen by BMW somehow. Um, I really don't understand what its level of of independence from BMW might be, but they solicit... um, Nominations for the award from uh, BMW club officers all around the world. The officers, you know, they, they fill out a form that says we nominate this person because and here's their CV and 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 this is why we think that it would be appropriate. Yeah. And Mike Friedel approached me one time, and he said to me, "I've nominated you for the for this award." And I said, "No, that's nice." And I didn't hear anything about it for a really long time, four or six years. And then uh, I got a call from, I think it was Vince Winkle, called me from the MOA and said, oh, you're going to be receiving this award, and Muriel Farrington is going to present it to you at your local BMW Club's Christmas gathering. So Muriel showed up. I was a member of the Mac Pack of our local club, and uh, we had a Christmas thing every year and she made this little presentation of the award. <clears throat> the actual award and the medallion and everything is absolutely gorgeous. They're their archival quality stuff. is really beautiful, but not a lot of, about what it means. I don't really I mean it's nice, you know, I mean I've been I've been a supporter of yeah. BMW you know, I've been under the BMW umbrella since the day I was born, sort of. But,
0: exactly. Uh, yeah.
1: You know, I've been in the BMW industry for 50 years. Uh, this this summer will make 50 years that I've been in the business. And, uh, um, you know, I've left and gone off to do some other pursuits for a couple of years here and there because, you know, like everybody, a boy's got to eat, you know, and you got to feed the family. And, and I just never was really good at turning motorcycling into a profit center. You know I sold motorcycles I sold services I sold parts I just never made a lot of money at it I didn't manage the money well um just wasn't what I was good at but um had a lot of wonderful memories well I hope I don't lose those you know yeah right um, and and it's but it's it's been an honor and receiving that mark that that award was an honor and and because it's Spoke kind of clearly to the, to the way I see my my involvement with the BMW world. It's, a, it's that I'm a brand ambassador, and I, I spoke to a couple of guys at New Jersey Motorsports Park one day. Roy Oldermuller who is longtime BMW communications, all kinds of stuff. He's a big shot at Motor USA, and uh, a guy that was over from uh, Germany, who is a BMW guy who handles. A lot of, he he, how I say, he harvests all of the various Internet stuff that has to do with BMW motorcycles and collates it and, and creates files on it. And, and Roy introduced him to me. We were walking through the paddock at the racetrack during a Moto America event, and Roy said, oh, Tom, I want you to meet this guy. I don't remember the guy's name right now. Um, unfortunately, as my age advances, my memory for names isn't very good. But um, and the guy, as soon as he heard my name, he said, "Oh, I have a big file on you." And I thought,
0: "What? what? Oh, yeah. J. Edgar said, oh, Hoover? Yeah, what?"
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking, yeah, so quote officials says they got a big file on me. That doesn't make me feel safe. No, no. But uh, he said, he said, uh, and I, say, he said, uh, we have a lot of. And I said to Roy, I said, I don't understand why they gave me the Friend of the Mark Award. I said, I have never been anything but completely candid about my opinion of what BMW does. He said, you know, he said, you are an ardent spokesperson for the Mark, and, and you, nobody restricts what you say. He said, and that's really valuable to us to have that perspective. And I thought,
0: well,
1: yeah, they could send some money my way.
0: That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah right. Is there a check with that? Uh, well,
1: I can't even buy a Big
0: Mac with that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: but, you know, but it made me feel
0: good. Yeah, well, and uh, deservedly so. Uh, I, I think that uh, if there's, you certainly meet the criteria and, and more uh, for what they designed the recipient to be. Uh, all right, Tom. Let's talk uh, one more sort of question. Uh, bring us up to modern day topics and then we'll quickly sort of run through the uh, last of our sort of four questions we ask everybody on this podcast. Uh, I want to talk to you as much as you'd like to mention about the wedgetail ignition system. Um, we do see new products from airheads from time to time. Uh, Sieben Rock introduces uh, new things uh, and has been uh, good at doing that, at doing that. The wedgetail is something, uh, that's relatively new to the airhead world as, as far as electronic ignition systems. You've seen, I imagine, quite a number over the years, everything from the Dyna 3 uh, to the other offerings that have been out there, improvements on the BMW brand. Uh, why did you want to become a U.S. distributor uh, for Wedgetail?
1: Oh, um, well, that's easy to say because the guys who make the Wedgetail... Follow my philosophy exactly, which is quality, quality, quality. And everything else comes after you get the quality product. We don't, we don't cut any corners to save money. We don't cut any corners to find the cheaper, mass-produced item. We don't buy anything out of South Asia or China other than the the housing for the bean can, and even those we've had to hold very strict tolerance standards with them to get those and to, to be able to have reliable supply. But all the electronics in them uh, are U.S. made all, and, and U.S. still makes the best electronic stuff, quality-wise. Um, <clears throat> and the, uh, the bearings and stuff are all stuff you could buy off the shelf at any bearing supply place anywhere around the world. And I really like the philosophy. The guys in Australia who came up with this uh, Mark Morrissey got me on board real early, and we were both really frustrated because the alpha ignition, we had both, you know, tied our wagon to that brand, and we had a, a five-year run of just constant failures. And the the manufacturer and distributor turned a blind eye to it, just did not acknowledge any of the failures, and we ate. I... I bought back about a dozen systems. And they're like $300 systems. That's a significant outlay for a small shop. And I have all those sitting in a box, and they're in junk now because they just quit working, and the people were frustrated. And the problem is you lose a customer because you have a customer that gets stuck on the road. You have a customer who believed your word that it was a good product, and then the product fails, and the customer always then has got this question in their head. Uh, well, I don't trust what you say anymore, and that's what really hurts for me. Is because I, I'm up, I'm up front with my customers. I say this is what it is. This is this is the deal. I don't don't ever hedge and cover up and dance around stuff. Um, so the point for the Wedge Tail was to give people something reliable, and to do that, it was going to take a new design. And one of Mark's customers was a guy by the name of Langdon Green, and Langdon. Is a Australian supercar. Uh, I don't know exactly. A computer engineer for for Formula One and supercar racing. I guess is I don't really know his CVs very well, but um, but he's a magician with things electronic and sparky, sparky, um, and he's recognized as that around the world. And Langdon also owns a bunch of antique motorcycles, including airheads. So he, his heart was in the project, and uh, uh, he got in, and he did a lot of design work, and we did a lot of testing for several years. And I was just really impressed with how well the Tail system worked, because what I really liked is that it's not just another system that makes sparks. It makes a bright spark at a lower RPM, and it makes a bright spark at a high RPM, And when I say bright spark, I mean higher spark energy and higher ability to to bridge the the spark plug gap and ignite the mixture. And everybody tells me when they put a wedge tail on their bike, I can't believe how easy the bike starts now.
0: We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot, but I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247 bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support.
1: Every, Every BMW out there suffers from weak spark. All of the aftermarket ignition systems, they might use a dozen different methods to trigger it, but they're all still giving you a weak spark. And that's where Langdon's genius lies and I know that there are people trying really hard to reverse engineer the, uh, the, the magic that Langdon has come up with. And I know it's a matter of time before somebody clones, you know, his, his maps and stuff and, and makes something else. That it, It'll be a ripoff. There are people in the industry who have no shame at all about ripping off every design that comes out that has any promise of being marketable. There's one guy who's made a living out of doing it for 20 years, and uh, <clears throat> it's just, I, I won't go any deeper into that, but we chose to not look at that, we chose to look at that, let's give the customer the very best product, and to back it up with a no-hassle warranty. No-hassle means really simple. You call me up and you say you got a problem, I, I mail a new one to you, send me back the old one. Period. I don't argue with you about it. I will test it. If somebody has a problem, I'll test it. I just sent a box of about a dozen different components back to Australia for for destructive testing. And I just got the results. It's from our first six months in operation. And uh, some people have problems, but their problem went as far as they let me know about it in the minute that I sent them a replacement.
0: Well, it. I was... No I,
1: questions, no answer.
0: I was one of those. Uh, I, oh, okay. Yeah, I plugged one went in on my uh, 78RS. Uh, I gave you a call, and we troubleshot it uh, on the phone. I think it took about 10 minutes. Uh, we quickly realized using a multimeter and spinning uh, the engine around via the rotor uh, that the voltage was not changing. And uh, you determined it was, that was sort of a bad unit right out of the box. You had one to me in three days and uh, I was able to, I had another wedge tail on my GS. So uh, what I did in that case was I just installed the ICU on the, on the, on the RS to make sure that was the problem. And uh, yeah, so here's, here's my take on that. You know, failures are going to happen. That's inevitable. Uh, I think what really is important there is is the customer service there to back it up when it happens, and that was the case here. I mean, you had a new unit out to me, uh, no questions asked, and it was a seamless uh, experience. I've been happy with uh, both of the ones. I've got one in my R80GS and one in the 78RS, uh, and I'm going to order another one uh, for my R90S. But, uh, yeah, I've noticed uh, the cold starting. Uh, is better because I installed both of these sort of in the cooler, colder months. Cold storing is a lot better. And, you know, I I did have to uh, adjust the carburetor uh, a little bit because I think uh, the fuel mixture might have needed just just a slight bit of adjustment knowing that uh, I was generating a little bit better spark uh, and I had a little bit, maybe a little bit higher idle than I was used to with some of the other ignition. So, you know, all around, so far, for me, uh, I've really been pleased with them.
1: Uh, I'm glad to hear that. And, and uh, <clears throat> the important part for me is that, A, we have a good product that I believe in. Yeah. And B, the, the customer service aspect is incredibly important for me. I grew up in a business family. Uh, there is a chair at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College named for my grandfather. My grandfather was third president of United Fruit Company. My grandmother's nickname was Chiquita, and that's what they named the banana <laughs> packaging process yeah. after so so customer service has been you know getting a good product to market has been a family thing when I grew up, I heard my parents they owned a sporting goods store in New Hampshire, and I heard them talking every night over the dinner table. It would be a conversation about it wasn't all about how many that this they sold and how many they sold it was this customer had a problem was it handled to the customer satisfaction. Yep. It never wasn't handled so we made money. It was, was the customer satisfied. Small town in New Hampshire, people talk. And I've, my attitude is the whole world talks now. The whole world is a small town because of the internet.
0: Yep, well people said.
1: Talk. And, and customer service is so incredibly important. And, and I bend over backward for anybody that comes to me with a problem, and, and I will address and deal with that problem and And I will just continue to go to bat, and I've gone out of pocket a lot of times for my customers. I mean, I've had a few people come at me trying to um pirate my my work and and to to carry it to other vendors and stuff. But you know that's been such an isolated circumstance, and even with them, i try to I try to you know give service with a smile as far as I can, you know. There comes a point there when there are some problems. But but overall, um, I think people who know I mean, I guess it it's telling that I have customers that I first serviced their motorcycles in nineteen seventy five. Sure.
0: Yeah, that's and are
1: still coming to me. And those are in Vermont. And those people find me in Pennsylvania and they come to me, they buy parts from me, they call me up with questions about their bike. Yeah. They welcome me in their home. You know, I'm their friend. I'm not just a guy that sold them stuff. I, you know, these people are my friends. You know, I'm married to a BMW rider that I, that I met by selling her a motorcycle. Actually, I sold her two motorcycles, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I, I gave her exceptionally good service. Yeah, I, w- I was just gonna say.
0: <laughs> yeah, we hey, could go. There, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And give me that look. Yeah, <laughs> we could go a number of different ways with that line there. But let's just yeah. let's just summarize that by saying. Ah, uh, WedgetailUSA.com is the website uh, yes. for those, and then of course people can also reach you. Rubber chicken uh, racing—just put that in in the Google machine, and, and it'll come up there. Here. But yes, I've got two you can of them. Just
1: Google Tom Cutter or BMW, and there you find
0: go. There you go.
1: Sixty-eight pages of hits or something like that. But WedgetailUSA.com is my U.S. website for sales. You know, like all of my websites, it's not complete because I'm horrible with web stuff, and uh, I've got so many things on my plate at springtime in the motorcycle business. I got so much going on that I just, you know, the website is functioning, and I've got as many orders as we can produce units for. So, so I'm not really anxious about having the website generate more sales. If I can't get the product, I mean I've got product. I've got more coming. I just got a notice from DHL that I got a pretty large shipment is sitting in customs down in Philadelphia. Okay, good. We'll have that in a couple more days. We'll so have product. I'm looking forward to the MOA rally this year. I think that the this. The the best thing you can put on a slash five. This is the year of the slash five at the national. That's NASA. right. Yep. And the best thing you can put on a slash five is good ignition. Yep. Uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, because God, who, who has the energy for points anymore?
0: I, I don't. I can tell you that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah. yeah, WedgetailUSA.com. Yeah, the website is sparse, but that doesn't matter. Uh, there's they're available for the. Uh, 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 70 to, I uh, can't remember what the delineation is. Yeah, every
1: model, 1969 to yeah. 1996, every airhead we have a fitment for, and it only is two kits. Really, a third kit, because the 78 and 79, right. or 79 and 80 rather, models had the bean can with the points. Yep. So we require one extra wiring harness for that. To, to to put the module back behind the coils. Uh, but all that's on the website. There's no pictures yet because I haven't figured out how to put a picture into a GoDaddy website after you create the site and go live with it. But, uh, I've got several people who offered to help me with that. I just haven't had time to do it. Well, but they're in stock. I've got the, I've got the units available for sale and, uh, they're high. The price is high.
0: Yeah, they're and $500. Yep. Price.
1: Yep. Yeah, they are. That's our intro price, and, and we had to squeak to get it to that price because, like I said, we simply won't compromise And uh, as far as the quality of the components. So we're paying a premium for components and, uh, and keeping inventory out there. We're keeping a big inventory of components because the supply chain issues could have really badly impacted our production. And the other thing that impacts our production is that Langdon's building every single module from scratch.
0: Oh wow! Okay, I didn't realize that. He, he, yeah, made uh, he well, one
1: guy doing them, and you know, this is not something we're farming out to to a sweatshop. It's being done by uh, Formula One guy who knows what it feels like to have to walk home. And these guys. In Australia, they tested, tested these systems in Australia, and we have a Wedgetail available that has a dual circuit in the module and a dual hall sender in the beam can so that you can switch back and forth for, for redundancy. And the reason these guys did this is because they point out that in Australia, you can ride all day and not see another human being. So they carry jerry cans of fuel, they carry spare parts on their motorcycle, all kinds of stuff, and they're out there in the woolly outback someplace, and, you know, ignition failure, they all bring charging system parts and stuff, and this way they don't have to bring a spare ignition, they can just switch over to the backup.
0: Yep.
1: I haven't heard anybody that's had to do that yet. That you had to switch over to it. I don't push that in the USA because we've got good cell service coverage here in the USA, and and most people I don't think get far enough from available help to need to have that switchability. But we have them in stock. I've got them here. They're a bit more money. They're like seven hundred and sixty-five dollars, I think, for the full boat road load. Um, but it's available. We got them. They're here, and they
0: work. There you go. All right. WedgetailUSA.com. All right, Tom. Yeah. Uh, so here we go. Uh, let's uh, go over sort of, these are sort of the, the four bullet point questions I like to ask everybody as, as we put a button on our conversation here today. Uh, first up is going to be your Mount Rushmore for the 247 model. So the four bikes, I'm going to limit you to four here, uh, that stand out in the 70 to 95 model run for you. What would those be? You told me four, and I gave you six. You did, but see if you can whittle it down.
1: <laughs> what do you want? I'm a New Yorker. I <laughs> hear you. I hear, want? You. You, know? I um, hear you. I'm going to say 1976 R90s, 1977 R100 RS, definitely. Those are just primo motorcycles in every way. Um, my other four that I had on my list are all, let me see. I would say a 1985 R80 Mono, and any of the GSs, R80 GS. I count the R80 ST as a GS. Too.
0: Sure, sure.
1: Yes, GSST, R80, R100. Any of them, all of them are are landmark bikes. And and uh, the only airhead I currently own is a '93 R100 GS. I sold all my other ones.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you what's still in your garage, and and that's it.
1: Okay, what's filling my garage? There's one Airhead, and uh, uh, I have a 2014 R9T that belonged to a friend of mine who used to work in my shop, and he passed away. And his wife called me and said, Joey wanted you to have his bike. So I've got it, and, and I love riding it. And uh, it's just a really nice – it's everything the Airhead should have been, and it is the the ultimate – uh, expression of the airhead is the R9T, uh, the oil-cooled version, not the liquid-cooled. Yeah. Um, and the other one that I have is a 2022 R1250RS.
0: Oh, okay. Uh,
1: it's the first new model, I've brand-new new model that I've bought in since my R90S, really. Wow. Everything else that I ever bought. Well, well no, I take that back. I had My RADST was the first of, obviously, being serial number one. But this RS is just, it's an amazing motorcycle. It, 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 I, I really say, I think that I could use my BMW connected app on my phone and send the bike on a ride and it would send me back to <laughs> the ride. It doesn't really need me to go with it as far as I can tell.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I understand the technology and these it, days is pretty amazing.
1: It's not Airhead, but it's a delightful motorcycle and it's, it's been fun to ride, I'm going to ride that to the to the National this year because my, my GS that I've got is a bike I salvaged out of a barn in Canada, and it needs a lot of work. And I just, I've had some, some physical health issues and haven't been able to get much in the shop in the last couple of years, so that bike is going to get fixed up, and that'll be my rider airhead.
0: Eventually. All right, so... Going back uh, over time, uh, I know there's a lot of things. People, this is not necessarily a uh, one-subject answer to this question, Uh, but for you, maybe a few design changes you would have made if you could go back in a time machine uh, on the airhead run of motorcycles what what would you go back in time and tell the engineers, look, uh, you know, this is just simply not going to happen. I'm putting my thumb down, putting my foot down here. It's not going to happen. What are a few of those?
1: Number one would be better quality suspension components. <clears throat> um, BMW has insisted on using inexpensive short lived suspension components. And replacing suspension from the aftermarket is a huge financial hit.
0: Is that, For now, let me jump in and say is that it doesn't seem to be uncommon in the motorcycle industry in general. That might be a, That's a, true. a broad brush, but that always seems to be a shortcoming, even on the most new modern bikes.
1: You, well, mostly you're correct, although a lot of manufacturers are now offering high-end stuff with Olean's with suspension and stuff, which isn't even the best. No. Olean's is far from state of the art. A lot of it is just gold anodizing on old crap. But, <laughs>
0: That's um, exactly
1: right. Well, you know, I, I, call, I call it like I see it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's a lot, a lot of flash and not necessarily, you're not necessarily getting the very best technology. But to me, I don't care about the latest technology. I want something that works, has some adjustability for the rider to tailor his ride to the load. And and, uh, in that regard, one thing, people come to me all the time, well, I'm not a racer, so I don't need fancy suspension. And I point out to them, I say, oh, yes, you do. Because you know what racers never do? They never load up their camping gear on the back of their bike and have their wife hop on. (laughs)
0: That's a good point.
1: never happens on a race bike. (laughs) A race bike has one seat. We know exactly how much the rider weighs. We can build the suspension for that rider and put it on the bike. And when the flag waves, they go away and they go really fast. For a touring rider that's going to ride across the United States between fully loaded camping and commuting to work on Monday through Friday and then going on a trip with a passenger on the back of the bike, you need a tremendous variation, a vari- uh, variability of a suspension adjustability. And it takes high-quality stuff to do that and to last and to hold up over the lifetime of the ownership of the motorcycle.
0: Yeah, it does. And,
1: uh, you know, there's... there's uh, Everybody gets in the motorcycle suspension business seems to get drunk on the idea of let's get a lower, lower price. Let's get a lower build price so we can get more money out of it, so we can make more money on it. And and there's – I was about to go down another road with all that. But suffice to say that, that your choices in supplier of suspension in the United States right now for airheads are woefully narrow. Um, and And that's not a good thing for the consumer.
0: All right, suspension yeah. and it's I, and I I agree with Whatever. you wholeheartedly on that see everybody's always making a suspension change. Uh, the other-, other
1: things the styling issues, <clears throat> I think that you know BMW when they came with the slash fives, you know they had a few colors that they didn't offer on slash two. I think they should have gone with more colors. They had more colors for the cars, and I thought, God, you build the bikes in the same building. Yeah, right. How can't you put gas tanks and fenders through the paint booth with the other stuff? I mean, like, <laughs> how hard is that? When I mean, Harley-Davidson figured it out a long time ago, the number of different color options you can get with a Harley-Davidson is dizzying. It and is. It always was. Yeah, that's it true. It has been since the dawn of time. Harley-Davidson's were available in a bazillion colors. And they that's part of what let people personalize them. Um, <clears throat> the third thing, I would, I would have never allowed the toaster tank. And two the chrome side covers to get out of the factory, I would have said no and no. And uh, uh, just never would let that go. I think they're just hideous to look
0: at. Uh, I'm, uh, I had a toaster tank. I, you know, I immediately replaced it with the larger one. I thought it looked better and was more practical uh, with the well, carrying capacity.
1: Um, now, in retrospect, The toasters are kind of unique, and it's kind of a neat thing. You shine up those panels, and they look kind of good. But in the day, we used to, and I I, makes me cry, we used to take those panels off and put the rubber... BMW made a rubber knee pad available that had a little cutout yeah. in it for the bracket that held it. So you could put it on, and you never knew that the toaster tank, the panel was there. Because <clears throat> the tank was painted underneath, and the striping worked and everything. And and that's the way we sold them. We used to take off those panels and stack them on a shelf in the garage at the wheel shop. And one day, we were, we were cleaning up and cleaning out the garage. There was a big garage with a lot of shelves. And I came to that stack of probably, I don't know, 15, 16 sets of toaster panels. And uh, I took them down. They're all, you know, starting to rust and gathering dust. And I just took them over and stuck them in the dumpster. Mm. Okay. <laughs> now, those people are getting 500 bucks for a pair of them. I know. Now.
0: Well, it's like that with I, anything.
1: I've got to put my kids through college. Let's <laughs> I, I throw them away. You know, um, that. the other thing that
0: that um oh sorry yeah that's fine um I uh
1: I think the BMW should have stayed better ahead of available tire technology and incorporated in their engineering um You know, one of the things that the rest of the industry has not, has not failed to do, to address is using the best tires available today, the best sizes available today. You know, 17 inch tires, both ends currently are, are what works. Um, there's so many choices available for riders. Even back in the day, you know, when we had 19 front, 18 rear, you know, a lot of the the industry was going 18 both ends and then it was, you know, for a while, the industry went to 16-inch front wheels. That didn't last very long. But 17-inch front wheels started to come in, and there were a lot of good tires developed for those. They could have put more rubber on the road, and that would have improved sales because it looks better. Uh, now you see guys building these these cafe rods, and what do they do? They all put a big tire on, and some of them are going way overboard with it. They're putting these big, ugly white walls on, but... Yeah, you know, some of these things I wonder really wonder if these people cleaned their glasses lately. But um, yeah, you know, they uh, you know, they should have stayed. I think BMW should have stayed ahead of the tire technology better. As far as the basic product, <clears throat> the Airheads a good product. It's a really good product, you know. And their their issues with their their reliability issues with gearboxes and stuff like that is because they have stuck firmly with. A German a large German supplier who just isn't giving them the quality control. I don't think Getrag ever gave BMW the quality control that they deserve to have. As a a proud manufacturer of German products, BMW should have gotten better treatment from Getrag.
0: Was Getrag, they were responsible for eliminating the circlip in the later model transmissions?
1: I can't say who actually made that decision because I wasn't privy to it. But man, in retrospect, we sure know that that, you know, savings of, of a few cents at their end, um, just had a major impact on owners later on. And it's not like they didn't know because on the bikes that had the circlip, frequently the bearing moves on the transmission shaft and pushes the circlip in like a conical Form and, and the, the fifth gear wears, the, the design is flawed. It shouldn't rely on the bearing holding the gear end float. That should be two separate things. It shouldn't re- rely on the bearing for that. I mean, you know I get it that from production, that's an easy way to do it, but the number of failures are just unacceptable. Um, I think it's the weakest spot in any five-speed air, uh, airhead. Um, and even, uh, I saw the same thing happening on some four-speeds. The 4 speed oh, really? uses the same, the same gear on the output shaft. It just doesn't come loose because, A, they had to the circle up on all four-speeds, <clears throat> but it's the same design flaw, uh, in my, in my opinion, um, I, I'm not an engineer. I don't know how I would have changed it to be certain that it was better. I mean, I've come up with some changes that that I do on every transmission I build that are a little different, but I don't I don't publicize them. I put them in the gearboxes, and uh, um, that's what Bob was trying to take a picture of when Hans put the, towel <laughs> oh,
0: the transmission. Okay, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Propri- <laughs> yeah. Proprietary work going on. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right, fair enough. All right, Uh, your best or worst uh, breakdown or roadside repair story?
1: Uh, Well, let me see. Excuse me. That R69S that I rode to uh, Yellowstone Park that night, in the middle of the night, I smelled gasoline. I stopped to have a smoke and a pee, and... uh, smelled gasoline on my boots. The carburetors were vomiting gas on me. And uh you know, I didn't have anything like to to look with like I didn't bring a flashlight or anything. You know, I I barely even had a warm shirt. Um and uh I had to work by moonlight to try to figure out how to fix this leak in the carburetor. I really didn't know much about mechanical stuff in that time. Um, but I managed to get it sort of sorted out and got to my destination and all the gas didn't run out on my foot. Um, the other one was, uh, I'm going to call it heat related when most of the heat was happening on the rider brain. It was on me because I failed to, I had the same failure happen repeatedly on a ride to the MOA rally in Sedalia, Missouri in 2012 and, uh, um,
0: I remember how hot it was that summer, too. It was ridiculous.
1: The, that whole trip, I, well, I rode from Summit Point, West Virginia. I left my trailer in Summit Point and rode my R100 Fake S from there. And um, the bike was fine on the highway. Run down the highway, it was fine all day long. I'd you know, see the mileage, decide that I needed to pull in for gas. When I rolled off the throttle to go up the exit ramp for fuel... By the time I got to the top of the ramp, the bike would be stumbling and stuttering. And by the time I got close to the gas station, the bike would shut off and it wouldn't restart. And I was like rolling, trying to restart it. And then I would have to jump off and push and push and sometimes push a few feet, sometimes push, you know, 100 yards. And pushing a 100 yards, I wear all black leather. I don't wear like, like nylon and, and arrow stitch gear ever. I wear leather. Because I'm a racer, and that's what I wear. And black leather in 100-plus degree temperatures, when you're pushing a motorcycle that's loaded for a weekend of of touring, is that's not really a healthy thing to have happen. And so the bike would quit, and I'd push in, I'd get in for gas, and I'd fill it up for gas, and I'd pull it over in whatever shade was available. Um, and uh, I remember one of the times that I was stopped, a lady got out of her car with an umbrella and held the umbrella over me because she <laughs> saw how much I was perspiring. <laughs> oh, well, I worked on my carburetor, and it wasn't a carburetor problem, but I couldn't figure out what was wrong. Yeah. Because my brain was fried. And, and, and some guy <clears throat> stopped, and he, he said, what's the matter? Can I help? And I said, no. He said, what's it doing? And I told him, a, my Harley did that. He said, they changed that thing on the ignition. That sensor thing on the ignition and that fix it. And I think to myself, Dude, go away. You know, don't bother me. I'm I'm sweating. You just So he left. And then the next day, middle of the day, it's hot as hell, the same thing, and the bike is stopped and I'm trying to work in the shade of a building in high noons, you know, the, the shade was like six inches wide, and and uh, I'm trying to figure out what the hell is wrong, and I'm taking the tank off, trying to figure out something wrong with the coil, and I couldn't figure it out, and the guy stops, yeah, yeah, he said, my four-wheeler had that problem, and it was that, that sensor thing on the motor, he said when it would get hot, it would shut off, and I'm like, yeah, 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 go away, you know, I didn't say don't go away, but I'm just thinking to myself, just go away, you know, what, what the help are you? You know, <laughs> there's the old story about you know, God sends all the
0: people. Yeah, someone. exactly. Right, right.
1: And then I'm in St. Louis, and I'm under the place where all the highways interchange over one, over overpass under the other and stuff. And I'm going up there and get stuck in the little stop and go traffic, and the engine temperature goes up, and the bike shuts off. And I'm on the side of the road, and there's about four inches of, of shoulder. And uh, it starts to rain hard while well, I'm under there, and fortunately it wasn't raining directly on me. But what I didn't realize was there was a drain, storm drain from a highway above me that let out its discharge right where I was standing. <laughs> I'm standing there in my leathers with my helmet off, and suddenly I've got a gusher coming down my back of water. And I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with the bike, but I did figure out by then that it was heat-related, and I took the front engine cover off the bike, and I just stuck it under my bungee cords on the back rack, and the bike started, and I just drove away in the pouring rain, and uh, I got all the way to the rally that way, and, and, and it rained most of the way, but no more shutdowns, and I replaced the hull sensor. On the Endura so as an EME product, uh, Endura spark ignition, and they sent me and they overnighted one to me, so I got it. That was when John Raysky owned EME, and I was his first dealer, and uh, so he overnighted a, a new uh, ignition trigger to me in uh, at the hotel in Sedalia, and it happened to be the same hotel where the BMW. Parts bigwigs were staying, most the guys from Germany and the ones from the US. The guys who are like walking around incognito at the rally and they always do that. There's always dozens of BMW people at the rallies who won't tell you they're from BMW. They just talk to people, they just if you talk to somebody at a rally who's got a German accent, there's a reasonable chance they might be working for BMW.
0: Okay, insider.
1: Yeah. the people. <laughs> Anyways, anyways, I digress. Um, and and so these guys sat on the curb and watched me change this thing, and I did it, and I made a couple of friends in the process that that actually helped. I We set up a back channel. Uh, Craig Vichorek was there, too, from yep. Benchmark Works, and, yep. and we were able to set up a back channel with these guys into the parts system that was outside the BMW dealer network to report problems. And remember when they had the bad points, the Chinese points? They didn't know about that at the factory. They didn't know in their parts system that there was any problem because points sets under $20 dealer cost. Therefore, the dealer can't make a warranty claim on it. And it's parts sold over the counter, and the dealer just gives the customer a new set of points and says, see you later. Yeah. If the customer even goes back for a new set of points and figures out that it was a defective set. So they never knew that they had, I've heard, 5,000 or 10,000 sets of bad points they put out all over the world. And they never knew at the factory that they had them bad until I asked them why they kept selling them. I said, why do you guys keep pushing these? And they didn't know. They, they were very interested to know about it. And the other thing was um, clutch cable failures.
0: Hmm.
1: And I pointed out to them, I actually disconnected the clutch cable off my bike and showed it to them. I said, this is where the problem is. It's mismanufactured. They changed the way they're swaging the end on it. And I mean, now we're getting into the technical detail stuff. But they were fascinated. They said, well, you know, we don't have any way to know about this because a clutch cable is not a warranty item. We never comes back to us. We don't know these problems are getting out there, and we we trust our suppliers to to deliver to our specifications. And uh, um, so they they slowly phased in a change of those too, and that was from reports that Craig and I, you know, both, you know, either one of us individually or just one guy complaining. When you get two guys who've got some. Some weight in the industry, then they start to listen.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense.
1: And, you know, and, and, and uh, you know that uh, you know I've gotten contacted by Getrag because um, I talk. You know, I, I'm on the internet talking about the crap that they do. And years ago, I got a call from them, and they said we'd like you to, uh, you know, to to do a conference call with our engineers. I said, how much? Is what do you mean? I said, what are you going to pay me for that? And they said, "Oh, well, we don't have a budget for that." I said, "Well, I'm sorry, I don't have a time budget for that, then, you know." And and uh, they weren't willing to to make a little investment to figure out what they were doing wrong, because their their rear drives for the oil heads were getting out, and for the the, the parallel rear drives on the GSs and and the later case were getting out in the field, and just they were not built right, and uh, the dealers couldn't fix them because the tool, the special tool fixture that the dealers needed to use was mismanufactured as well. And if you used it to shim the rear drive, you ended up with the wrong shimming. Unless you modified the tool and sent it to a machinist and told them what to do. And uh, you know they didn't know about this stuff. And I didn't, you know, I said to them, you know, it's going to cost you. You know, I'm in this industry and I need to make a couple of dollars and they refused. They, they weren't interested. So that bothered me.
0: Well, I mean, that's, um, that seems a reasonable ask. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what the price you might have quoted, or even if you quoted a price. But, I mean, it's, a cons, it's what, I mean, what's commonly known as a consultation fee.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought it was completely reasonable. I, mean, yeah. I, do, I do expert witness testimony in product liability cases against, against motorcycle manufacturers. I've been doing, my dad did it in the ski industry back in the 70s and 60s, and uh, he hooked me up with the guys the same you know law firm that was providing a lot of expert witness consultants and in various fields. And, and he said, well, my son is an expert in the motorcycle field, if you ever want that. And I've done a bunch of stuff, and most of the time BMW was the, the defendant in the case, and I normally testified for the plaintiff. And, uh, um, you know, they pay they pay dearly for that. I mean, when you're talking about a multimillion-dollar product liability case, the lawyers are willing to spend money to bring in an expert sure. that can give them, you know, uh, credible information. And, and I'm I'm pretty proud of the fact that every single case that I've provided testimony on, the plaintiff has prevailed in the case, every one. And and in one case, I had the the administrative law judge that heard the case mentioned in her summary of finding how impressed she was with the presentation that I made how much detail and how much clarity I gave to help her understand the nature of the problem and the BMW person who they brought in just muffled and baffled and danced in a circle and gave nothing
0: well well without getting into too much detail what was the crux of the case
1: that was a uh 1600 b that pulled if you let go of the handlebars the bike would veer into the oncoming traffic lane uh it would not track straight you had to hold the handlebars you had to make a turning motion on the handlebars all the time to ride the bike yep. and, and uh that I, I can't get any deeper than that. But
0: okay, was that was that like a newer uh, model?
1: Yeah, brand new. That's k sixteen hundred bagger.
0: Okay. Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. The 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 wedge six the six cylinder. Yeah. The bagger.
0: Yeah. Okay. That is a relatively new model. It passed what five yeah, or six years or whatever.
1: And yeah. And, and BMW lost that case in uh, in the uh, small claims judgment in, uh, it wasn't a small claims actually, in a product liability judgment in uh, New Jersey. Hmm. And New Jersey's a tough one. New Jersey usually goes for the manufacturer every time. Yeah. It's the way their their product liability stuff is structured, but that's got nothing to do with the airheads.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, litigation aside. All right, yeah. next, uh, next one moving yeah. down the list here. I'm curious, Tom, what's, uh, as you see it, uh, all, all these years you've been around airheads and just motorcycles in general... Uh, the future of clubs and the Airhead 247 uh, hobby. Uh, you mentioned uh, the age, median age, seems to just continue to uh, stay older. Uh, it's not getting any younger. So how, how do you see that going forward in the next uh, 10, 15, 20 years?
1: I, uh, I think we're going to have a whole new... It's going to be a whole new complexion. Airheads are no longer cheap transportation. Uh, There are people that own them and continue to ride as their daily rider to go back and forth to work. And it's their only vehicle. But that's, you know, the first time they run into a repair where the cost of parts exceeds the value of their motorcycle, they're going to suddenly come to the realization that airheads are no longer cheap. BMWs. Parts prices are criminal. They're so high that owning an airhead as as functional daily transportation is really not practical anymore. Um, yes, there are aftermarket companies that are supplying a lot of stuff. They've jumped into that void. And in many cases, they're supplying a good product. But unfortunately, they're flooding the market with a lot of junk, too. And people don't know. They've got no way to know which is good and which is bad. Um, you know, you take, you pay your money, and you take your chances. I'm, you know, and I see, you know, the new younger, the the internet crowd, as I call them. You know, everybody was, you know, that is internet natives versus, you know, digital immigrants, as I am. You know, um, they were they they see the entire thing differently than we do, you know, and than, than us older guys do. You know, they. They just get to go right on the internet. They they want to go on the internet and look at everything, and and they think that the answer they find on the internet is the answer. And then they, I I tell everybody I say wrong information looks exactly the same as correct information in ten point Arial font.
0: That's a fair point.
1: I I think that 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 there's one day we should have AI that can sort the bullshit, and all of the bullshit should be presented <laughs> in a in a crayon font. <laughs> Show the value, and, and the really good stuff should be in old English and boldface, you know, just, just to, like, differentiate that, like, this is the right answer, and this is some guy, you know, sitting on his sofa scratching his butt and just typing whatever idea comes into his head. And I see it on the forums. I see guys throw stuff out there. Well, you ought to try this, you ought to try that. And it, you know, it, it indicates to me that they aren't thinking at all about what they're posting, that they haven't even thought through the basic cause and effect chain. When somebody says, I have this problem in my bike, you know, and then the stuff they say. But anyways, that's got nothing to do with your question. But the clubs should be able to address that. Clubs should be able to address, for the airheads particularly, yeah. you know, we need the, the strength of more technical information. Um, tech days are good but tech days now have, have devolved into cigar smoking and donut eating, and, you know, that's fine. I and mean, that's a great place for the old guys to, to hang with their old pals. But but in, as I said in the thing that I sent to you, the curmudgeon thing has outlived its usefulness. I agree. You know, you know the, 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 the airhead guys, the younger airhead riders, you know, they don't need the grumpy old guys to tell them the way it used to be because they don't care. They couldn't care less the way you use What they want to know is what is it right now? What can I do to enjoy my bike? And that's what I kind of try to look at all the time is, is who is my audience? And I, so that's why I do the seminars, the tech seminars at the national rallies. I did my first one in 1978 in the BMW rally in Rutland, Vermont. It was the first tech seminar I did with Oak Oaklishan, and we did two hours of any question from the audience, and I've done that at every rally I've attended since then, and I've done at least two seminars at each one. Now, I haven't gone to every rally, but I've been to over 40 of them, so that's not bad out of 50 years' anniversary. and. uh, I listen to what people are asking. They're asking different questions. I always, you know, I don't sleep in tents. That's a whole different thing. I, <laughs> okay. I don't find any. I don't do camping. I've been homeless, and, and camping doesn't hold any allure for me at all. Fair enough. So I go in a hotel, and I sit down in my hotel room, and I write down what I remember of the questions that people asked me. You know, what was the, the flavor and tenor of the questions I was getting? Were people looking for, you know, what clearance should I shim the, the, the bearing on my output shaft or, or which is better, electronic ignition or points? You know, those, those are significantly different types of questions, and I try to get a feel every year for what is the audience asking for now? What do they want to know? You know, and and, and and do I need to learn more to address that question?
0: Yeah, I think the... No, I'm still learning, too. I think the questions, uh, you know, you're talking about shimming questions, uh, you know, things like that, those those will always be there. Uh, as new people and younger people mm-hmm. are introduced to the bikes, uh, technical questions uh, will always seem to revolve uh, around a lot of those topics and things. I think the real difference is how are you getting that information to younger people the next generation or different generation of riders and enthusiasts and you know i'll tell you this what we're doing right now uh an interview in this format with the on-demand audio or podcast format a lot of i i'm seeing it uh in the email correspondence and uh that i'm getting from folks who listen to this that they're first-time airhead riders they want to hear tech tips. They want to hear uh, modifications, what are common modifications. A lot of the things that you uh, would cover in a tech session at a rally, you might not, the uh, younger folks might not, like you say, they don't want to go to the rally where it's, you know, cigars and and bourbon. They want to get that same information in a, in a different format. And I think we're seeing uh, a, a lot of that uh, you mentioned with internet forms is one, albeit, yes, there is a lot of bullshit on there in the crayon font, uh, I agree should be, should be instituted. That would be very handy, but, uh, I think we're going to find, and I've just noticed this in the short period, uh, we've been doing this, uh, this podcast and these interviews, uh, how, uh, people who are writing me and telling me, Hey, I really enjoy this. And I'm a first-time rider, and these are the things I want to hear uh, in your podcast. And these are the things I want to hear some of these guys address. So uh, I'm answering my own question. I think reaching out to younger riders and new riders in formats that they're used to being involved in is going to be a big key to keep the hobby going. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, I all right. agree with you. And yeah. One thing on that. Yeah.
1: I think that 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 we should memorialize some of the knowledge of the guys who are slowly slipping away from us. You know, it would have been of so much value to be able to get video recording of Oak Oaklish and talking about some of the topics. He was a unique in that he is an engineer with a lot of practical knowledge of stuff, and he really understood at the nuts and bolts level stuff. And And he and I you know, had a very healthy exchange of information for, you know, 40 years. And and I would have loved to have seen that stuff memorialized on video in in, you know, broken down into topics and specifics. And i love to do something like that. The problem that I've had with that is piracy. You know, you can't, it's very expensive to produce that kind of stuff. And people have no shame at all about pirating all of my work. You know, I see stuff that I write, on people's websites and i'm like i wrote that what the hell yeah and i contact them and i say i said you never asked permission to use my work and they just take it off their website they don't even answer me. they take it off the website and i was like you know i can't go around the world and be the be the cop all the time you know what happened to the honor
0: yeah i mean it's not that it
1: di- seems to be rare
0: yeah it's not that difficult to just call and say hey you know you mind if we take an excerpt of, of some of your work here it probably wouldn't be a problem yeah. And you mentioned that stuff yeah. about Oak, uh, you know, that I'm, uh, you know, I'm 50 years old. So I, I'm the, my only knowledge of him is what I when I occasionally pick up the airhead magazine that I get uh, and, you know, what's memorialized uh, as far as what he brought to the table. Thankfully, at least they're they've saved some of those old articles and, and topics where folks would write in. Uh so you know yeah. some of that is still there. Uh and I encourage folks who haven't uh who, who are new to the brand or new to the hobby uh it's worth joining some of these clubs like Airheads or Vintage BMW uh or MOA where you where some of that stuff is still uh, available. Uh and we had a great in uh chat with Snowbum uh on a recent episode Robert Fleischer uh, and we all know
1: yeah, I, I know him very well. I have not gotten a chance yet to listen to his podcast. Uh, yeah.
0: But we all know yeah, you know, all the great work he's done uh, in documenting uh, you know, the sort of common things that we all want to know, but also just the, the painfully uh you know, the painful minutia that he goes into there as well, which is helpful. Uh which is really helpful. Yeah. Because you can't find it anywhere yeah. else. You know, a lot of that yeah, stuff I can't
1: look at his stuff. And 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 try to clear my head and say as a new owner, is this useful to me? And sometimes it really is, you know. Uh, yeah,
0: that's true. It's yeah, it, it's definitely advanced level stuff. But and you know, also somebody else we spoke to was William Plam. Uh, he did a, he's done a great job on uh, YouTube with their uh, service uh, series. Uh, and there's some yeah, other... I
1: haven't ever watched any of them. I've heard people mention them.
0: They're good. They're really good. And there's a new guy there. Right. Of course, Brooke, uh, Brooke Reams has done a nice YouTube series. Mm-hmm. There's a new guy called... Um, oh, I want to say it's called the Airhead Garage. And it's just an independent fella. Uh, I think he's from Croatia. I can't recall his name, but he lives in Colorado. And he's just started a new series uh, on YouTube. And there... And, You know, he's not breaking any new ground, uh, but it's it's another place where folks can go get information and, uh, you know, see work done. uh, And the guy, he does a good job. You know, he's not he's not a hack uh, at what he does. Uh, So there, as I mentioned, you know, getting the information to newer riders, newer, uh, younger riders in a format that they're comfortable with, I think, is where we're going to see the see that median age go down and, and see the hobby continue to grow. So let's hope yeah, that's what the I, case. What I'm
1: hoping is that'll, that'll probably be the next transition that I make as I get out of doing hands-on repair work, um, because my health challenges have become overwhelming, uh, is to try to get down and document my experience and not just tales and stories, but actual technical stuff. Yeah break it down and share the way that I did. I mean, the service school that I taught in 1978 is completely relevant today. Indeed. To people that own a 1977
0: bike.
1: Yep. And and, and I, I talked to Udo Guido on a regular basis and, and you know, he's not getting any younger, but his memory is sharp. And, uh, and we talk about stuff that, you know, we, we wrote the, 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 uh, service school manual for the airheads we wrote it for butler and smith bmw has paraphrased it and is continuing to use it when they do a type 247 school for their for their dealer text they're using the text that we wrote wow they're not using brand new stuff it's the same stuff The some of it they photocopied and reproduced it a dozen times but it's exactly the same i have the original you know typed and hand marked up copies of all that stuff in my attic you know, and yeah, uh, that's you know because you know, this stuff's still relevant; it still applies. It is well, uh, it's there. I would love, I would love to get some of that stuff sorted out. You know, and uh, you know, it's it, it's a direction for me to look.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, myself and others definitely encourage you to do that uh, for sure. All right, Tom. So, last question. Uh, as we, uh, this has been a. Let me just say thanks for all your time today. We've had a nice long chat. Uh, which is fine. Uh, We'll end up using this in two episodes, uh, which is just wonderful. Uh, We can't cover all the things we uh, chatted today in one episode, but the final question and believe it or not, everybody always tells me they love hearing the answer to this one is what oil does Tom Cutter use in his two, four, seven airhead.
1: I've got to be honest um, because I don't bullshit anybody. I, uh, When I do an oil change for a customer and the bike takes four quarts of oil, which most of the modern bikes do, or four liters of oil, whatever, you know, when I top it up, usually there's a little bit left. There's, you know, 100, 200, 300 cc's left in the can. I have one empty oil oil container over there and I set it up, set this can on a funnel. And when that can gets filled, I... I put a cap on it, and when I get a couple of them and I do an oil change on my bike, that's the oil that I use.
0: Interesting. It all right. Be,
1: it, it's mostly all Spectro because I'm Spectro products dealer. Okay. Um, and that's what I run is Spectro Golden Blend. But it's basically leftover dribs and drabs that's left around the shop, and airheads don't care. As long as it's got ZVDP in it, the airhead motor does not care.
0: There you go. That's great. And let me just say...
1: Clean oil and enough oil. That's the type I use, is clean and enough.
0: <laughs> that's good. And let me just say kudos to you for repurposing uh, your little bit of leftovers there. That's a, that's a clever way to go about it. All right, all right, Tom. Well, look, uh, once again, uh, I really appreciate all your time today. Great preparation for the conversation. I appreciate you taking some time to uh, you know, do some pre-interview prep, uh, write down some of this stuff. Uh, A great, great interview, and I just want to say continued success. Keep up the good work. We're lucky to have uh, guys like you to take some time to talk to us today.
1: Thank you very much, Darren, and I thank you for putting in the effort to to collect and and make available this information. I think it's really a wonderful thing that you're doing, and I hope that more people are able to take advantage of the resource and get some one-on-one time with some of the people who made this industry great.
0: Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Well said, Tom. And uh, again, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. You're Well, there you have it. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And a big thanks to Tom for taking the time to visit and share his story with all of us. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.